Hello, 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 Miami Dolphin fans, and welcome to the Same Old Dolphin Show, part of the DolphinsTalk.com podcast network. I'm Josh Katzker. With me today and every day is my brother from the exact same mother, Aaron the Brain. Aaron, say hello to the people. Hello to the people. Here we are. We're back together doing our first episode together since the draft recap show. Yeah, it's 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 good to have you back. You know what it feels like when you're when you're in like elementary school, middle school and a little bit in high school and you're taking the bus to work. I mean not to work, you're taking the bus to school, obviously, and you've got a substitute bus driver and they they don't know exactly where they're going and you always got some like knuckleheads that you know at the at the front of the bus that for whatever reason either because they're just you know knuckleheads or pranksters or you know they they've got an assignment that's due in their homeroom and and they don't want to go and so they start giving the driver some like alternate directions and trying to get the the driver lost so that we we show up late so that you know it, it, the school day is like 20 minutes less. That's what it was like the last month or so with me hosting these shows. I felt like the substitute bus driver. We always got where we needed to go. We just didn't always get there in the most direct route. Well, so you, I, I'm, I'm curious who the knuckleheads were that were giving you the wrong directions at this point. Since you were doing the show by yourself, was this was this the draft picks? Were they the knuckleheads? Was it the the people who were tweeting us Twitter questions? Are those the knuckleheads? Who's telling you to go the wrong way? I wonder. I don't. I don't think you necessarily need to give us an answer right now. But that was as you were as you were rattling off that that very long winded analogy. That was what I was wondering. With the voices in my head, of course. Ah, so you're like Randy Orton. I hear voices in my head. Good. We got a ref- a wrestling reference in in the first couple minutes of the show. This is fantastic. It's just like we're, just like the we're old going days, all the way back to our origins. <laughs> That's right. It's just like our original podcast, the one that we had before this, where, where we talked about wrestling. This is fantastic. Oh, you got to stretch those muscles out. Yeah, it's been about three months. Since we've been together doing a show, and now here we are recording again uh, because we've got well, we you know we we scheduled this recording not because of the news, but just because we wanted to. It had been a while. We wanted to get on the air and do a show together, so we decided to do this same old dolphin show, dolphins rewatch series. And the people on Twitter voted for a game that they wanted us wanted us to review, and the, and the game was the 1994 wild card game, where the Dolphins hosted the Kansas City Chiefs on New Year's Eve 1994, and that was why we were going to do the show, and it was going to be specifically about that, and it is going to be primarily about that. But there is some news that I think we need to touch on. First, it, it isn't necessarily Dolphins specific, but it is NFL news that I think is important for us to talk about. So we're going to start off with some news before we get into our recap of the 1994 wildcard game between the Chiefs and the Dolphins. But before we do that, let's go ahead and get some plugs in. First off, 
If you are not following Aaron and myself on Twitter, you need to do that. He's at Aaron the Brain. I am at Amplified to Rock. You, you, my, my Twitter account right now is a little bit Cubs-centric because I'm excited about the fact that baseball is coming back. I'm a huge Cubs fan because well, I've told this story countless times, but growing up in South Florida in the 80s, and early 90s, there wasn't a baseball team there. And I grew up watching the Cubs on WGN, so I was a Cubs fan. Anyway, so my Twitter account is a little Cubs-centric at the moment. Don't be alarmed. It will be Dolphin-centric once there is lots of Dolphin stuff to talk about again. Uh, so make sure you're following the two of us. Make sure you're following the show at Same Old Dolphins. And make sure that you are visiting DolphinsTalk.com every single day. It is your one-stop shop for all things Miami Dolphins. So make sure that you're visiting the website every day and of course following uh, at Dolphins Talk that's uh, the main account that you can make sure everything every anytime anything is posted on the website it's right there on that Twitter account make sure you do that and then next you should go to Apple Podcasts Spotify Stitcher SoundCloud anywhere where you can get your podcast and you should subscribe to the same old Dolphin show and the DolphinsTalk.com daily podcast leave us a rating leave us a review Tell all your friends how much you love the show, and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to do that. So, late last week, the National Football League sent a memo to every team that said that training camp was going to begin on July 21st, that they were going to move forward with it for rookies reporting, and then from there, quarterbacks... Uh, would report, and then from there, the rest of the team's rosters were supposed to report to training camp. Of course, Sorry. unless you're not now, Siri, unless you're living under a rock, you're aware that there is a global pandemic going on and that it is in particularly bad shape here in the United States. So the players, rightfully so, were very alarmed by this. The National Football League Players Association got together and they had a number of conversations and a number of meetings and it was decided. Um, and in fact, it was one of the, one of the new, um, Miami Dolphins players, Byron Jones, who was the head of this decision that the players were going to do a social media blitz telling the NFL owners that they needed to put health and safety protocols in place because while all of these teams are saying that training camp is going to start, there's no health and safety guidelines in place. And, and all, a lot of players have children and wives and, and family members who might be particularly vulnerable to this virus. There may be players who are vulnerable to this virus. And if teams have not laid out protocols for how they are going to deal with this virus, that is a major problem and a major impediment to training camp actually starting. So one of the things that everybody wanted was for the teams to create an infectious disease emergency response plan. And the the Players Association wanted all of the teams to come up with these plans, submit them to the Players Association so the Players Association could review them, determine whether these were policies that were good enough um, to determine a testing policy. How about that? There wasn't even a testing policy in place when the National Football League made this decision to to that training camps were supposed to go on as scheduled. This was another point of contention. 
Um, since then, the NFL and the Players Association have agreed that players will submit to daily testing. Every player will be tested every single day. Um, and if the testing goes on and the positive rate falls below 5%, that the daily testing will move to every other day testing. Um, and as I mentioned, all of the teams have created these infectious disease emergency response plans, which the NFLPA is currently reviewing. All 32 teams have submitted plans to the NFLPA. The NFLPA has approved eight of those plans at this point. And at this point in time, the Miami Dolphins are one of those eight teams. So they are going to begin training camp on Thursday, July 23rd. So probably by the time you are listening to this, training camp will have uh, kicked off for your Miami Dolphins. So that is sort of the big thing that's going right on right now is that teams are trying to figure out what they're going to do in response to this virus. How are they going? There are now, supposedly the players are all wearing these devices so they can determine where... If, if a player tests positive, they can determine where the close contact happens. But there are so many things that are still left unresolved about how the NFL moves forward from here. And it, there's just a lot of, a lot up in the air. And Brain, you and I talked a little bit about this offline a, a couple of weeks ago about how things are going to go forward. At, at least at, at that time, there, there had been almost nothing said about it. Now, at least some plans are, are, are happening. We know in addition to these IDERs that the teams have put together, the NFL has now said there will be no preseason games, zero preseason games for anybody. And so that means that all of the team's personnel decisions are going to be based entirely on what happens in camp. And then the other announcement is um, the NFL has not said definitively, they've not sort of mandated across the league that there be no fans in stadiums or anything like that. The only thing they've mandated is that if there are fans in stadiums this season, that fans will have to be wearing face coverings while they are in the stadium. Um, the NFL is, seems to be leaving it up at this point to the individual clubs to determine what is going to be the best way for them to proceed. And, you know, most of these teams are in major media markets and most of those places are where this virus is sort of running rampant right now. So I think each team is going to have to sort of take a look at its particular situation to decide what they want to do and whether they want to have fans. But then you've got whether or not there is a competitive imbalance there, because is it fair for one team to have granted, you know, maybe 15,000 people in the stadium, but for another team to not have any fans in their stadium? And now that home field advantage is a little bit skewed. And is that fair? And is that something that should proceed? So that is among the myriad things that remain up in the air and undecided uh, as far as how the NFL proceeds with this virus. But as of now, the news is that it seems like the Dolphins have a plan in place and the Dolphins are going to proceed with training camp. And I guess just like everything else with this virus, for now, we're going to have to go one step at a time. And that's the step that we're going to take at this moment in time. Brain, give me your thoughts about all of this. 
like I said, and 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 we had, like you said, we had conversations about this offline a couple of weeks ago, and we we've had a couple of conversations about it. There's just there's too many people that want this to happen, and there's too much money to be made by doing it, and too much money to not be made by not doing it. That barring just massive spikes in positive cases among players and coaches, uh, it's just, it's not realistic to expect it to not happen. I, I think it's going to happen. The, the season is going to happen. Um, but I also think we're, we're in this interesting spot right here where the NBA and Major League Baseball are starting up. The NBA has preseason games going on right now. Well, I guess they're not preseason games since they're in the middle of the season, but scrimmage games going on right now. They've been in the bubble in Orlando, and we're going to find out in a couple of weeks what the effects of them playing are. And if there isn't a really substantial uh, result of positive cases going up amongst players and coaches or the people in that bubble, then I think everything is, is basically just full steam ahead, right on track. And obviously that's what we hope is going to happen. Nobody wants like politics aside, nobody wants people to get sick. And the the best thing that could happen is our sports return and there's no huge negative impact on the health of both the players, the coaches, uh, the people that work for the, these organizations, and the general public. Uh, if that can all happen, huge if, I know, but if that can all happen, then that's the best case scenario. And I think the, you know, these leagues and the NFL included and all of the organizations, are doing the best that they can under the circumstances to try to make that happen. Uh, so I, I, I truly believe that the, the season will go on. As for fans in the stands, um, I, I don't think <laughs> I, I'd be, I'd be surprised, you know, unless, unless we see a dramatic decrease in the number of cases over the next couple of months, I'd be surprised that there would be Fans just lining up to, to go into these stadiums, especially the indoor stadiums. I, I don't think people will do that, especially with the quality of the television product that's there. Uh, I do think I, one thing that I haven't heard is how the NFL's like blackout rules. Do those like no longer apply if, you know, if let's say, these teams, because the teams, the organizations, they want to make money. So they're, let's say they still sell the tickets, but the, the ticket sales are obviously going to be lower and they don't sell out home games. Do their games get, get, uh, blacked out? I don't really know. Uh, I don't know what the, the league's policy on that, or I guess the TV networks would, would stand to get such great ratings that they would they would take care of that just to ensure that they've got the local team on local television as far as competitive balance i mean really <laughs> I, I 
I really don't think that matters. Uh, I don't think, like, if you've got a team, I, I, like you said, it, it comes down to the organization themselves and what they want to do. If, if you've got an organization that decides they don't want to sell tickets, then fine. Well, then, you know, if they've got no fans in their stands, well, then they only have the organization to look at and say, well, hey, they made a decision and, the, and their decision was that, the slight home field advantage that they might get from having an extra, you know, 15,000 people in the stands was negated by, uh, the, you know, the desire to keep the, the general populace healthy, uh, which I think is a smart decision. Now, if other organizations decide, well, we're still going to sell tickets. If people want to come, they're free to come. Obviously, they have to pay to, for the tickets. Um, and I would think that maybe instead of selling at full capacity, they would maybe sell at like 50% capacity, therefore allowing for some social distancing to take place. Uh, then, then that's their decision. I really don't think, uh, the NFL needs to step in as a league and mandate anything league wide for competitive balance. I think they can keep it as an organization to organization decision. I didn't think about the blackout thing, but it, it makes sense to me that, you know, if in this instance, you would have to lift the blackout rules, right? I mean, you would have to. Allow. I mean, the whole idea, the right. whole idea. I mean, the whole thing this. is you're trying to keep people safe from market to market. So, and if you can't allow fans into the stadium, well, then you have to. That would be, but that would also be a super like NFL like move. Would just be, yeah, we can't allow any fans into the stadium. However, this game didn't sell out, so it's not on local TV. So it's blacked out within a what is it, a hundred twenty mile radius. Sorry. Yeah, that would be. I, I I can't see that. Well, I wouldn't think. I wouldn't think it would be like we're not selling tickets and then we're gonna black it out. <laughs> I don't think that that would be the case. But let's say they they're selling twenty thousand tickets and they only sell ten thousand. I guess you know you've got TV stations all the time where, especially in Miami, where you know over the past twenty years we've routinely not sold out home games, uh, where the local TV TV station will buy up the last ten thousand tickets so that they can play the game on TV. So if they're only selling twenty thousand. And let me just let me just save everybody the trouble. Can I just save everybody the trouble if we end up not having fans in the stadium? I'm just going to go ahead and say it now just to get it out of the way because the internet is a place where people love to make obvious jokes that blah blah the Hard Rock Stadium looks exactly like it did last season. Blah, blah, blah. The Dolphins don't have any fans in their stadium. Blah, blah. You made your funny joke, Internet. There it is. Congratulations. You've mastered the obvious joke. Um, about the mask thing, though, for fans who have to be in the stadium, if the Dolphins get to a place where they decide that they can allow fans in the stadium, that's going to be a pretty hearty 15,000 people to have to sit out there in that 90-something degree weather wearing a mask my thought is you're probably going to end up having to bring like five masks with you because you're going to sweat through them. Yeah, well, it's it's not as bad as it used to be. That's true. Now got they got that. the roof, so it's yeah. not it's not like it was it's in not 1994. Like, right. 
Right. <laughs> Sitting in the upper deck in, in 1994 or when we went to that playoff game in, in 2008 against the Ravens and it was like 94 degrees and we're just sitting there with no coverage and the sun just beating down on us. Uh, it, that, that's different. <laughs> it, it is not nearly that bad. Really makes you wonder about the people who designed stadiums in South Florida. Because the Orange Bowl was the same way. The Orange Bowl and Joe Robbie Stadium were both the same way. These enormous bowl stadiums with almost no coverage at all from the sun. Like It was like basically the only way you were getting coverage was if you were sitting in the club seats or if you were, you know, if, if the sun happened to be behind part of the stadium. You know, for a late afternoon game and you happen to sit on the right side of the stadium that happened to be in the shade. But... Anyway, that's what's happening with the NFL. We're going to keep a close eye on it. And as things develop and if there is news regarding things, we'll, of course, uh, pop up here on the same old Dolphin Show and we'll have everything covered at DolphinsTalk.com. So make sure that you are visiting the site every day so that you can get our opinions on everything as it happens. So we're going to shift now to the 1994 wild card game in the AFC. The Miami Dolphins hosting the Kansas City Chiefs in 1994, the wild card round of the playoffs. And, um, you know, when we decided that this was something that we were going to do, we really wanted to do it from like a complete fan perspective that we just, we didn't want to go in and do like hard hitting analysis of the game because, I mean, this was, this game is 26 years old at this point. Um, you know, you don't, you don't need that. We were really looking back at it from just sort of a fan perspective and going back and watching this game. And my thought was that we'd watch it. We'd see some of these players and we'd talk about some of the things that happened in the game. What made this extra special is that this particular YouTube stream had the entire broadcast on it, including the commercials and the halftime show. Um, and there was just some amazing stuff to take in, whether it's the um, the McDonald's New Year's Babies commercial, um, which were really exciting to, you know, uh, the different kinds of um, advertising boards that you saw in the stadium. At the beginning of the game, you see Al Michaels and Frank Gifford and Dan Deardorff in the booth. And I mean, that was just fun just listening to those guys because that was the Monday night football crew that, you know, you and I grew up with and listening to those guys. But they're sitting there in the booth and you see on the advertising boards across the stadium, you saw a board for 610 WIOD, which in the 90s, that was the AM radio station in South Florida. 610 had all of the live sports. That was the place to be. It was the home of the Miami Dolphins. We had, uh, there was a blockbuster video board up there. This was just like you were immediately in the 1990s watching this Carvel. I, I don't know if there even is Carvel anymore but it was so it was just sort of fun to watch that sort of stuff and it was just fun to take in the game as a whole so I as I went through the game I I jotted down some notes and and we're gonna we'll go point to point as we talk through this game but it's really you know gonna be more of a light conversation and hopefully some of you have sat down and rewatched this game as well and if you haven't maybe you'll pause the podcast right now and now go rewatch it so that you can um you know, we'll be here when you're ready. Just pause it 
and then come back to us. We'll still be here and we can sort of talk about it. And you can reminisce on some of this stuff as well. Um, but yeah, it was just a lot of fun. Brain, what were your sort of general thoughts uh, from this 1994 wildcard game? Well, I like you, uh, the the thing that jumped out to me the most was the commercials. That's where I had the most fun watching this was the commercials. But also, like, well, like, just for example, when it comes to the commercials, the sleek new design of the 1995 Ford Taurus, that was, that was good. Um, the, the Bud Light commercial with the guys dressed as the ladies for the pool tournament. And I tweeted out the video of me watching this. And then I got to tell you, that commercial does not hold up in 2020. No. Well, it's, it's incredibly problematic in 2020. Well, yeah, yeah, (laughs) of course. But going back and looking at it to a simpler time, 20, uh, 25 years ago, uh, you know, them doing that. And then at the end asking, Oh, are you the defending champion? And the guy turns around. Well, the guy dressed as a lady turns around. Yes, I am. The famous Yes, I am Bud Light commercial. Just classic. So I love that. But as far as the actual game, um, it's striking to see the, the difference in the, the shoulder pads back then. Every guy looks huge. I, I I wrote that thing down. I said, and and you know who it, who it really occurred to me with was Pete Stoyanovich. Yeah, Pete Stoyanovich looked jacked. I was like, I was like, was Pete Stoyanovich really that big of a guy? He looks enormous. And then I was like, no, you know what? It probably is just the shoulder pads. But he <laughs> watching this game, I'm like, Pete Stoyanovich looks like freaking Lex Luger. Yeah, uh, so that jumped out at me, uh, but but really what jumped out the most was just, especially in the first half of the game, the duel between Dan Marino and Joe Montana. And granted, this was post-prime Joe Montana. Um, Montana, at this point in his career, was still a good quarterback, uh, but he had all kinds of injury problems and he wasn't, he wasn't nearly as mobile as he was earlier in his career. And the downfield throwing wasn't really a part of his game. It was very much dink and dunk. So at this point in this stage in both of their careers, to me, it was very clear that Dan Marino was the better quarterback, but this was also the tail end of Marino's prime. Now, granted, this was post. Uh, Achilles surgery because the this was the year after this was the year that started with that game against the Patriots. Uh, so this was the year after he had come back from the Achilles surgery and had a great year of Pro Bowl season. And I believe, I believe that was his. He maybe had one more Pro Bowl season after that, or this might have been his last Pro Bowl year. And it's this was actually his first. Uh, or the most touchdown passes that he had thrown in, in about, in like six seasons or something like that. Al Michaels made mention to it at the beginning of the, uh, of the break. So when you're watching this game and you're seeing Marino playing probably at the height of nineties, Dan Marino, not necessarily like eighties, Dan Marino, who was throwing the ball all over the yard and throwing 40 touchdowns, uh, or 48. In the, in his one, in his rookie year or second year. Um, 
this was pretty close to prime Dan Marino. And when you looked at the team that they built around him, granted, there was not a great running back. He never had a great running back. Bernie Parmalee uh, was serviceable. Irving Spikes got in there. And some of these names that came up over the course of this game were were really fun to to remember and reminisce on. But you had a great offensive line behind Richmond Webb and Keith Sims on the left side of that offensive line. Jeff Dellenbach, a staple at center. And then... Really, the weapons there in the passing game, Keith Jackson, probably the best tight end, arguably the best tight end in Dolphins history. The Dolphins have not had a bevy of great tight ends, but Keith Jackson, probably the best tight end that Dan Marino ever played with. Uh, Irving Fryer, who, although at the tail end of his career, was a legit number one receiver. Mark Ingram didn't play in this game because he was banged up. But stepping up into the number two role was O.J. McDuffie, who I believe in this game was in maybe his second or third year in Miami. And O.J. McDuffie really stood out in this game. And you got a good reminder of the kind of player that O.J. McDuffie was. So it was really fun to see a well-put-together Dolphins offense with a, a real maestro at quarterback, a Pro Bowl quarterback. The, watching the Dolphins offense like that, uh, we really haven't seen it probably since that year or maybe one year afterwards because Marino's decline after that was pretty precipitous. And in the last few years of his career, the Dolphins were not some group, some juggernaut offense. Uh, you kind of saw the writing on the wall with Marino uh, going downhill in the Jimmy Johnson years and the team shifting to trying to win with defense and playing the boring brand of football that we've seen for now over 20 years. Yeah, and I believe this may have been no, this wasn't Marino's last playoff win because he 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 had the win against uh Seattle, Seattle the following year. Yeah. But well, uh, that, well that wasn't the following year. That was that was, was a few uh, couple years later. Yeah, that was like ninety eight, I wanna say, ninety eight, yeah. ninety nine. But this was it this was Marino, yeah, not not at the height of his powers, but you know, they hadn't diminished I mean, that on the much co- yet. Kind of there. Like, as far as the arm and everything, like, he still didn't have the mobility because of the Achilles thing. But from a, you know, mental aptitude, the arm strength, the accuracy, everything was on vision, display. This was, that Marino vision, the, his ability to see the game was still on full display here in this one. Yeah, it was, it, I mean, this was a, this was pro bowl Dan Marino. This was throwing for 30 touchdowns in the mid-90s, which was not as easy a thing to do and not as common a thing to do as it is now, where you'll probably have, you know, two-thirds of the the teams in the league will have a quarterback that throws for 30 touchdowns. In those days, you know, a 30-touchdown season was legit. You maybe had five or six guys do it. Yeah, well, Marino was a revolutionary quarterback in a lot of ways for, uh, you know, for the Dolphins and and really the entire NFL. He really sort of changed the way the game was played. So diving into this game and this broadcast, uh, which I highly recommend, just Google it. The whole game is on YouTube and uh, you'll see it. It's there. I, I strongly recommend checking it out. You get this pregame interview with Dan Marino. He's wearing his L.A. gear, Dolphins hat, 
I mean, if you didn't know this was a broadcast out of the 90s, you did at that moment when you saw the L.A. gear hat. Um, Yeah, just a couple of legends on that Kansas City offense. Joe Montana in what ultimately was the final game of his storied career. Uh, Marcus Allen at running back. Uh, He still had another few years left in him after this season, but it was pretty exciting to watch. And as the game got going... You mentioned this, Brain, that Montana's powers were very much diminished and that the dink and dunk sort of game was his, um, was sort of his main thing. And I think one of the facts that struck me as I watched this game that the broadcast team delivered was that Kimball Anders, the running back for Kansas City, was the Chiefs' leading receiver during the regular season. Right. It was, it was very much, uh, a dink and dunk offense. Uh, and, but that said, Montana, you know, not unlike Tom Brady, who over the past several seasons has cut back significantly on his downfield throwing, they were still extremely accurate, extremely decisive and smart with the football. And so they could still lead their offenses down the field. It's just, it wasn't. You know, unless you have Brian Cox making a boneheaded play where he doesn't try to wrap up on a tackle and misses the tackle. I mean, that's vintage Brian Cox, though. uh, Unless unless you're doing that and allowing, uh, you know, an eight yard reception to go for a 60 yard touchdown. uh, That was, uh, you know, they they were going to need to drive 10, 11, 12 plays to to score touchdowns. But they did it, and they did it well. I mean, the first drive, and they of the ran game, the ball well, and they ran the ball well. They, they were a good running offense, and and that first drive of the game against the Dolphins, Montana pretty much carved the Dolphins apart on that drive. Eleven plays, eighty yards, six and a half minutes. Um, I wrote down awful defensive opening from the Miami Dolphins, but really it was an awful defensive first half for both teams because both of these quarterbacks just sort of did their thing. Um, this was the first point where I wrote down a commercial after the Chiefs scored. There was a commercial for Denerex, which they which they called themselves the Serious Dandruff Shampoo. And they it was this this was a pretty popular commercial at the time. And it's this guy and he's got his hair, you know, parted right down the middle and half of his head has got Denerex on it. And half of his head has head and shoulders on it. And the whole thing is, he's like, well, I, I don't know what's going on with head and shoulders, but Denerex is really working because I can feel a tingling there. So I can feel something special. And then they have the spokesman come on and he says this whole thing about Denerex is this great shampoo and you know it's working because you can feel it tingling. Denerex, the serious dandruff shampoo. And uh, I just wonder, is Denerex still a dandruff shampoo? Like, could you go to the store right now and get yourself a bottle of Denerex? I don't know. Did you look this up? I, I haven't looked. I haven't looked and tried. Why don't you Google it right now? All I can I can't say is believe that you went through the trouble of of working that spiel into the show, but you didn't look up uh, if that's actually uh, a thing. It looks like it's still a thing. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, see, and Denerex I, extra strength dandru- uh, dandruff uh, shampoo. I would uh, like the, to take a re- poll. Can I take the a reason? Poll? The reason that it gives you that tingling is because it uh it it uses tea tree oil. 
which huh. if you've ever, if you've ever, like myself, uh, struggled with dandruff in your life, tea tree oil uh, is often one of the go-to ingredients to cure dandruff. So it makes sense. Well, isn't that interesting? I, I just sort of assumed that they fell off the face of the earth. But then again, I would because I am a head and shoulders user. There's a plug. Give, <laughs> I thought you were going to say because you have no hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, that's also true. That's also true. Um, well, I, I'd like to take a poll. Tweet at us if you use head and shoulders or Denerex. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll tweet something. I'll tweet something. Well, the out. Neutrogena tea gel is really the highest end. I mean, it's, it's terrible for your hair and it smells bad. Uh, but the, the Neutrogena tea gel with the coal tar extract, that's the really good stuff. Um, I am, I'm, I'm going to send out a tweet here live on the air on this podcast that you're listening to on demand. Which dandruff shampoo do you prefer? I'll do a You know, I want to take back I want to take back something. <laughs> Generics. Earlier in the show I mentioned how uh having you back was going to keep the show on course and get us where we needed to go more directly and here we are. I don't know how many minutes into the show and we're talking about Denerex shampoo versus Neutrogena versus Head and Shoulders. This really took a hard left turn and I didn't expect that to happen, but here we're we are. Cruising down I-75 and the and the school is on on Taft and uh in Flamingo. Yeah. Well, anyway, we'll get back to the game here. So after um th- this is the stat that you mentioned that Al Michaels talked about. He said that 94 was Marino's best statistical season since 1986. There you go. So, so it was a pretty good year. This game had its fair share of fun plays in it too, including a pass to Irving Fryer where he came across underneath and then ran into trouble. So he pitches the ball to James Saxon, who couldn't quite get into the end zone. But, you know, to see a lateral on a play like that, and and uh, I believe it was Deerdorf on the broadcast who was like, this is not a flashy Miami Dolphins team. This is Don Shula is not known for this kind of stuff. They're not the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, but... You know, it, it happened there and it was a fun, fun little play. Irving Fryer. Irving Fryer. And uh, the Dolphins ended up scoring a touchdown uh, by Bernie Parmalee running in a TD. So it was a 72-yard drive for the Dolphins to answer the opening touchdown drive from the Chiefs. So, again, very impressive from the Dolphins' offense. I, I, I put another note here because in the commercial – it said that you could get a Big Mac for 95 cents with the purchase of a large fry from McDonald's. Let's talk, talk about the deal. original value menu. That's a friendly a deal. deal. Friendly yeah, deal. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we came back, and this is where I noted the terrible, this just vintage Brian Cox shoulder tackle. Uh, Kimball Anders has the ball, and... Brian Cox just making no attempt at all to wrap the guy up. He just just flings himself into the guy, and the guy bounces right off and and goes sixty something yards for a touchdown. Delightful. So Kansas City with the lead, and then we're into another commercial break where we found out that on January first, nineteen ninety five, Delta will become the first United States airline to be completely smoke free worldwide. Yeah, that was pretty incredible. What a what a stat. It's kind of crazy to think that as late as 
the 90s, there was still smoking on a lot of airplanes. You know, I'm sure there are plenty of people listening to this who have flown across the country or, you know, been on flights and would have never thought that smoking on an airplane was a thing. Or, but it, or if it was a thing, it was a thing from like the 60s and 70s. But no, here we are in the mid 90s and airlines are only really just starting to eliminate smoking on airlines. I thought that was an interesting, uh, just an interesting note. This is, and then immediately after that is where I wrote down my note about Pete Stoyanovich looking like a big guy for a kicker, but it was the pads. Um, this was, a, this, how about this stat? That was shared that the Dolphins had allowed a punt or kickoff return for touchdown in each of the final three weeks of the regular season. Yeah. And, and I, when I heard that, I said, Oh, well, this must have been pre Mike Westoff, but no, then Mike Westoff was there. And I wonder, uh, I wondered, uh, you know, that must have been like pretty early in Mike Westoff's career, but, but no, he was actually. That was like right in the middle of it. I guess they just, they had some injuries and they were, they were switching some things up, but that was a pretty terrible stretch. And it was the, they, they, they mentioned on the, on the telecast, the, the only time, at least to that point, probably still, but at least at that point, it was the only time in NFL history that a team had allowed uh, a kick or punt return for a touchdown in three consecutive games. Yeah, I mean, impressive. The Dolphins holding down records. Um, Kansas City continued moving the ball at will after that, scoring another touchdown. Got a got a close up of Tom Olivadotti. A number of close ups of Tom Olivadotti in this game. Tom Olivadotti, who we famously uh, saw having breakfast at Bagel Bar West in Pembroke Pines, Florida. Probably around this time, actually. Now the Mayor's Cafe. Now, yes, yeah, right. The establishment formerly known as Bagel Bar West in Pembroke Pines, Florida. Great bagels. Highly recommended. If you're ever in Pembroke Pines, go to the Mayor's Cafe. I, I can't speak to the Mayor's Cafe, but Bagel uh, Bar it's, West is It's solid. Fantastic. It's solid. It's, I wouldn't say it's exactly the same as uh, as Bagel Bar back in the day, but it's it's solid place. I mean, let's, let's face it. If you're in South Florida, you're... You're not going to have a hard time finding a good bagel. Let's, I mean, eh, let's just put that out there. Eh, I don't know. You'd be, you'd be surprised. I used to work at a bagel place. I used to work at a bagel place. I think both of us, our first jobs were at bagel places. Yeah, I worked at Brooklyn Brothers. You worked at Einstein Brothers. There you go. So Einstein Brothers, originally John Offerdahl's. That's right. They did make a Dolphins connection. John Offerdahl became what he was John Offerdahl's bagel place was purchased by Boston Market and then that became Einstein Brothers is I believe how that story goes so this we're really just killing it with this game analysis here talking about <laughs> bagels and, anyway Tom Olivadotti what a face on that guy anyway um so I was talking about Kansas City moving the ball at will, which is, of course, when the Dolphins held them to a field goal on that drive. Um, an incredible line from Dan Deardorff. One of several incredible lines um, during this broadcast from Dan Deardorff. He says, is this North Miami or South Fort Lauderdale? Which talking about the location of of Joe Robbie Stadium is like such a great line because it really is not Miami. 
that stadium is not located in Miami. I mean, well, it's barely. Miami Gardens. Yeah, it's, but it's, I mean, it's practically Broward County. Might as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's about a, it's about a f- uh, five minute drive or less from Miramar. That's right. So that's why the statement is such a good statement. You know, like such a good question from Dare Duradorf because the, you know, it really, he really nailed it. It's like, he, it's are we like in he, agreement that, I mean, eliminating, uh, you know, Howard Cosell and Don Meredith because we're too young to remember them. It, since our day, which was basically this trio of Michaels, Gifford and Deerdorf through the present, that is still the best Monday night football booth that we've seen in our lifetime. Oh, I would say so. I would say so. They were certainly, just speaking from a subjective standpoint, I would say that they're my favorite. Well, it's, you can't do it objectively. Right. I'm, well, you could, but, you know, objectively, Dennis Miller was a terrible addition to that booth. Am I, I wrong? Dennis well, Miller on Monday Night Football? Let's, why don't we make, why don't we find a Dolphins Monday Night Football game where Dennis Miller was broadcasting and we'll, we'll reevaluate. We'll do that on the next review show. <laughs> right. Because this um, one's going so well. Yeah. We got a we got an advertisement for the uh, Comp USA Florida Citrus Bowl. Comp USA sponsoring the Citrus Bowl. Number six, Alabama versus number 13, Ohio State. Uh, we got a, a six-yard Dan Marino scramble in this game. Crazy legs Dan Marino. We talked you talked about um his he did Certainly did not have mobility, and and Marino was never really like a great mobile quarterback. But the thing that struck me about Marino in this game was that was just how panicked he seemed to be when he was under pressure, and how awkward he looked. But yet, how magnificent his footwork was that he was able to just make a little move to get away from a tackler and make a and make a pass for a touchdown. In fact, he. Uh, he uh, did that shortly after this to uh, throw a touchdown pass to Ronnie Williams. He was just, he just, it looked like he was in an all-out panic. Um, he had those happy feet, but, you know, he got away and he was able to figure out what to do and he made it work, which is something that he always seemed to do. Yeah, it was three things with Marino. It was his ability to just kind of shuffle his feet in the pocket uh, and and you'll hear people and you if you watch football over the last twenty years, I'm sure you could look at you know Tom Brady, not a very mobile guy, but shows you the importance of having footwork within the pocket, the ability to move in the pocket while keeping your eyes down the field. Also, Marino's ability, like just a big dude, just being able to stay upright even when defenders are on him. Um, you know, not dissimilar from a guy like, like Big Ben. Uh, like there was a play in this game where he had a defender draped all over him and he kind of double clutched and then still delivered a pass without even really stepping into it, just right on the money in the middle of the field on a crucial, I think it was a fourth down play. It was at least a third down, um, but it was a big play on a drive that ultimately resulted in a Dolphins touchdown. Um, there were two. There were two on the drive. There was one on a fourth down where he 
scrambled out of the way and found O.J. McDuffie. This was right after the two-minute warning. And then he did it again a couple plays later where he found Ronnie Williams for the touchdown. Yeah. And then the last thing was his, you know, just his quick release. Uh, yeah. His ability, you know, not having this really long windup, but just his quick release to just, as soon as he sees it, just let it fly and still has the velocity and the accuracy on it. Uh, just a thing of beauty. Yeah. I mean, it was, this was just, it's vintage Dan Marino. And that led us into the halftime break with the game tied at 17. And then we got to halftime. Now you skipped, you skipped the halftime portion. And then you, you came back, you went back because there was a good, interesting interview with Don Shula that we're going to talk about in a second. But, you know, they showed the highlights of the game that happened right before this on December 31st, 1944, where the, Packers defeated the Lions. Uh, and in this game, we got a highlight of Dorsey Levens rushing a touchdown for the Green Bay Packers. Oh, yeah. Love me some Dorsey Levens back in the day. Oh, yeah. I think he was on the he was on the Super Bowl team for the Packers. I, I believe that is correct. So a, a blast from Which the I past. I think was just the, the following year, yeah. I believe. And then the part of what made that win so big for the uh, Packers they had of course um, uh, Reggie White and just that ferocious defensive line they held Barry Sanders to negative one yards rushing in that game the legendary Barry Sanders with negative one yards Um, incredible interview with Bill Cower on his bye week um, sitting at home on the couch wearing a Greg Norman sweater uh, just very, very 90s with his, I, I guess, like teenage daughter who was just like sort of leaning on him through the entire interview, never took her eyes off the camera. It was sort of like um, the 1994 version of the 2020 NFL draft because she was just she was there. She was just sitting with him. He's having the interview with uh, John Saunders in the booth and uh I don't know. It was just incredible that here's the, I you don't see that a lot. I guess it happens a little bit nowadays, but to have an interview with a coach on his bye week from his home uh during the playoffs was pretty interesting to me. And then we got this really great interview with Al Michaels asking Don Shula all these questions about his future. And, you know, how are you feeling? And Shula is, of course, playing it straight. And he's saying, well, we, 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 we know that Shula is playing it straight because we know what ended up happening. But Shula is like, I'm, I am going to keep coaching for as long as I can do it. And, uh, you know, in fact, he was actually asked point blank by Al Michaels at one point, you know, what do you think of this rumor about Jimmy Johnson coming in and taking your place? And Don Shula said, well, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And it has nothing to do with whatever Jimmy Johnson's plans are, which of course, in, in retrospect is really interesting. <laughs> Shula said, even says, he's like, if, if, if Hazinga needs some help finding a replacement for me, then, then so be it. But, and, and then of course we know how it all ended up playing out. But I thought it was just kind of a weird uh, sort of looking at it from 2020 at looking what that interview was in 94 and knowing how things would play out in about another year was just fascinating. Yeah. And I did not recall that that rumor had been going around for that long. 
because this was following the nine or this was the end of the 94 season. Shula would be there for an entire another season. And then that's when he would retire and Jimmy Johnson would take over. I did not realize that the rumor had been around for that long. And when Al Michaels asked him, well, do you plan on coaching next season? And Don Shula's response was, well, you know, I have, I certainly haven't decided not to, and I'm looking forward to, to coaching next year. And in fact, I signed a two year contract extension. Uh, so I've got this year and then two years remaining on my contract. It sounded to me like he had every intention of finishing out that contract, but this rumor had been around. Probably, you know, obviously where there's smoke, there's fire. And probably, you know, as many of us suspected that year, uh, that, you know, Don Shula was essentially, you know, didn't necessarily want to retire, but it seems pretty clear to me, Jimmy Johnson wanted to coach again, wanted to be the coach of the Dolphins, and they probably were just in a spot where, you know, they didn't want to wait another year for Jimmy Johnson. They didn't want to give Shula that last year. And this just kind of confirmed that for me. I mean, it's pretty much, it pretty much was known and I, I pretty much knew it anyway, but I, without doing a whole bunch of research on it, that's just kind of how I remember it. I was 11, 12 years old when this happened. So I wasn't, you know, super, you know, and the, and the internet was not what it is now. So it wasn't like I was diving deep into this. Uh, back then, but, uh, this really just confirmed all of my beliefs that, yeah, Don Shula was clearly pushed out to bring Jimmy Johnson in. And that was basically in, in, uh, it was in the works for over a year. Yeah. And so that was, it, it we all know what happened, but it, yeah, it was just very eerie almost listening to that interview. Um, in 2020, knowing how things would later play out. And then finally, it was weird. And I felt bad for Don Shula in that interview because the interview, when I, I like I said, like I was watching that interview, I went back to watch it because you had told me to watch it. And I had originally skipped halftime. I, I wasn't sure. I'm sure like, you know, I, I, I kind of had some expectation that some of those questions would, would be asked, but it was the entire interview it was one question after another. Are you going to retire? Are are you going to coach next season? How many years are you going to coach? And it was just like Al Michaels just grilling Don Shula. Yeah, and it was this sort of celebrated man of integrity, this man of strength who had, you know, one of the greatest, the all still remains the all time winningest coach in NFL history. And you know, it just you really did kind of feel bad for him. Rest in peace, Coach Shula. Rest in peace. Um, and then the final question that I, I wrote down a little uh, line was Al Michaels asked a question to Shula about the young coaches in this league. You, you look at the young coaches in this league. Bill Cower, okay, Hall of Famer. Uh, but then Dave Wanstatt and David Shula were the other coaches that were were mentioned alongside Cower in that interview. And it's like, well, Wanstatt, not a great NFL career. David Shula, very much not a great NFL career as a head coach. Uh, Bill Cower, I'll give you that. I just thought, I just thought it was funny that you know in '94 these were the up and coming, promising head coaches, 
and only one of them really turned out to be a, a great, great coach. Uh, back into the second half, again, more incredible Dan Marino footwork, another touchdown pass to Irving Fryer. Irving Fryer, I think an underrated, um, wide receiver on the sort of, in the sort of hall of great Miami Dolphin wide receivers. I feel like Irving Fryer may be a little underrated. Uh, yeah. I mean, he, he had some great years with, with New England. Uh, and he was, he was pretty much widely recognized as a very good receiver, not a great receiver, but a very good receiver for a long time before he joined the Dolphins. And when he joined the Dolphins, it was to give the Dolphins that number one receiver that they had basically lost that they hadn't had for a couple of years uh, after, or maybe it was only a year or two that they were without Mark Clayton. Uh, but basically the Marx brothers were there for so long. And then when they were gone, uh, you know, the Dolphins were, were still in that spot where they're, they're trying to put together a Super Bowl run for Dan Marino, knowing he's getting towards the tail end of his career. And uh, you know, Irving Fryer was a big piece of that puzzle. They, I think they brought in Fryer that year with Mark Ingram and then added, uh, OJ McDuffie via the draft only about a year or so prior. Uh, and it, and, and then Keith Jackson also added to the mix. And I, like I said, I, I thought this was one of the better, uh, dolphin offenses from a weapons standpoint, really in Marino's entire career. Obviously, Save for the Marx Brothers. Yeah, hell, even with the Marx Brothers, because back then, I mean, who, who, who'd they have at running back? And I mean, their tight end was Farrell Edmonds. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the story of the, of, you know, the Marino's career as a dolphin was that the offense was never really the problem. But, you know, we had, but this was a really good one. This was yeah, a this really was a particularly good, good offense. version of the Dolphins offense. I agree. Uh, Keith Jackson, who you just mentioned, we, we found out was suffering from a 24 hour flu and had to get an IV at halftime of this game. Poor guy. Um, another shot of Tom Olivadotti. He had to, he had the hat on crooked now. <laughs> um, it was really that LA gear Dolphins hat. I gotta find, the, I gotta, if they're, I would love to have. Was it LA gear or was it starter? I think, I feel like it was LA. Well, definitely the hat he was wearing in the pregame, I think was LA gear, but maybe, maybe this hat that they were wearing on the field was starter. But man, I got to get that hat. If, if anybody has the 94 dolphin sideline cap and they want to send it my way, shoot me a, shoot me a tweet at amplified to rock. Send me a DM slide in there. Um, Incredible. We got, um, so that close up of Tom Olivadotti. Oh, we got some love for Chuck Klingbeil. Talking about another blast from the past name. Klingbeil having a big uh, second half here, making some million dollar moves on the, de- on the defensive side of the ball. Um, uh, we got, oh, we got the OJ McDuffie end around for 20 yards. It is totally busted end around where McDuffie ends up going. Basically, he's coming in from the near side and it basically ends up running up the middle and then cutting back to the near side because the whole play had fallen apart. 
Um, and then we got another run, another great run from Irving Spikes, who, who really did look good in flashes in this game. Incredible line, again, from Dan Deerdorf. Irving Spikes, this is a rookie who you think is going to be around for the Dolphins for a long time. <laughs> I, I always liked Irving Spikes. So did I, but he had he had a lot of off-field problems. And again, watching this in 2020, when you know that he only had a four-year career, a four-year NFL career, played four years with the Dolphins and then was gone because he had a lot of issues off the field that he couldn't take care of. But again, just a funny, funny line. By and the then, way, by the way, that uh, 1994 sideline cap, Apex. Apex? Apex. Hmm. I believe huh. this is the one. Yeah. Authentic Apex NFL Miami Dolphins 94-95 era sideline cat. What's what's the going rate for it? Uh I see one online. It looks uh like it's it's definitely been worn. <laughs> uh, $45. Okay. Well, if it's definitely been worn, I don't know. It maybe I'll put it up there on the shelf it next. Do, I I don't want to say it looks dirty. But uh, it could just be the lighting, but there does appear to be at least uh, some some sweat remnants on there. Fantastic! All right, I'll I'll uh, I'll get right on that after the show here. Um, how about this cool stat that came up here? Was that we found out that this was in this game? It was the eleventh consecutive postseason game with a touchdown pass for Dan Marino, which at that point was the NFL record. He would extend his record to 13. Trivia time. You ready? Uh, Okay. Who is the current holder of the record for most consecutive postseason games with a touchdown pass? I'm going to say that it's not Tom Brady. Uh, I'm going to say that it is Drew Brees. Incorrect. Aaron Rodgers. Although Drew Brees is one of the, well, it's it's four quarterbacks, one of them twice. But there, Tom Brady, or I'm sorry, Dan Marino is currently tied for sixth. That 13 consecutive postseason games with a touchdown pass, he's tied for sixth all time with Peyton Manning. So who is who did you say you guessed is ahead of Marino? Uh, I would have guessed Breeze, obviously Brady, Aaron Rodgers. Um, I would guess there's one other guy. One other guy is Peyton. Ma- could Peyton Manning be on there twice? He could be. I'll say Peyton Manning. It is not Peyton Manning. Okay, maybe Tom Brady is on there twice. So there you go. There's another guy. Oh, okay. And he, um, and, and no, none of the guys that you have asked that you have suggested so far is number one. Oh, okay. Maybe Troy Aikman. It is not Troy Aikman. Steve Young. It is not Steve Young. Jim Kelly. No, it wouldn't have been Jim. Well, maybe it is Jim Kelly. It is not Jim Kelly. <laughs> the uh, answer with a streak that ran from exactly a year after this game. That ran a streak that ran all the way to 2010. Steve McNair. And it spanned two teams, the Minnesota Vikings 
and the Green Bay Packers. It was Brett Favre. Oh, 20, there you 20 go. consecutive games, 20 consecutive postseason games with a touchdown pass. Now, I should say that Drew Brees, who is currently third on the list, Brady had a streak from 2002 to 2012 of 18 straight games. Um, and then Drew Brees currently has a 16-game streak that is still active. 16 consecutive postseason games for Drew Brees with a touchdown pass. Um, and then tied for fourth, Tom Brady, who had a streak from uh, 2014 until uh, until he lost in the Super Bowl to Nick Foles. Um, no, I'm sorry. No, it was uh, actually in the game against uh, the Rams where the streak was broken, Uh, 14 games for Tom Brady. And then another streak that is ongoing from 2011 to present is Aaron Rodgers' 14-game streak. So Brett Favre isn't safe yet. But to tell you how how much the game has changed, in 1994, Dan Marino, at 11 consecutive postseason games with a touchdown pass, had broken the record. And now you have all of these guys who have come after him who have kind of shattered that record. So anyway, just thought that was an interesting bit of trivia that we saw there. Um, we got another Stojanovic field goal to put the Dolphins up 27-17. And at this point, it was starting to look pretty good. But then Kansas City had a big drive down the field to try to get back into the game. And J.B. Brown with the interception of Montana near the goal line to stop Kansas City's 10-play drive that really looked like that was going to get them back in the game. The next offensive possession for Kansas City, Michael Stewart strips the ball from Marcus Allen. And this prompted quite a discussion on the broadcast because 94 was right at was the year after instant replay went away. So instant replay had been in use for a while and then it went away again. And 94 was a season where there was no instant replay. And they looked the the announcers spent a lot of time looking at this strip. Uh, from Michael Stewart taking the ball away from Marcus Allen, and they were looking at it over and over again. Not that it made any difference. And in fact, it had happened a couple of times. There were a couple of plays in this game that they were looking at on the replay and wondering whether or not the call had been correct on the field. But it didn't matter because there was no instant replay. Um, And then uh, the last little thing that I wrote down was that (laughs) was a quote from... uh, from uh, Al Michaels, he said, there's Wayne Huzinga, the owner of the Miami Dolphins. And then somebody said, you, you didn't have to say Dolphins. You could have just said, this is the owner of Miami. Because at the time, he owned the Heat and the Panthers. No, no, it was the Marlins and the Panthers and the Dolphins. This guy was the king of South Florida. And Blockbuster. And Blockbuster blockbuster video, Blockbuster golfing games, the mini golf and... and uh, driving range that we had in South Florida for a little while. Yeah, Hazinga, I mean, you couldn't go far in South Florida without seeing how Wayne Hazinga impacted the landscape down there. Um, And then finally, we had Dan Marino in victory formation, the Dolphins getting the big win. This was a fun, a fun, fun watch to see the Dolphins, you know, playing really good football in a playoff game. You know, something that we haven't seen in a really long time, almost 20 years since the Dolphins uh, played good foot, really good football in a playoff game. Um, 
You know, one of the other things I thought was really interesting about watching this game, and it's just a difference of what the experience was, was that in 1994, you did not constantly have the time and the score and the down distance on the screen. You were largely looking at a blank screen and every once in a a while they would flash the down and distance. They didn't have the first line indication, the first down indication line on the field. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I really enjoy that. I'm kind of a a traditionalist when it comes to to broadcast. And I kind of liked the fact that it was this nice clean picture that you're looking at. But just a very different time. It was a flashback. And I had a lot of fun watching this. Did you? Yeah, it was a blast. I, I honestly, I, I wasn't super excited to watch it. Uh, it, it. It almost seemed like a chore. But once I sat down to watch it, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a, it was a really fun game to watch. It was a cool stroll down memory lane with not just the players and the game itself, but, but like we said with the commercials. And it was just, it was, it was a fun time. Yeah, it really was. Get a snapshot of, of life in 1994. You get a home improvement commercial. Um, you had, <laughs> yes, you had, uh, Al Michaels. So you had, you had Nightline or Primetime, ABC Primetime moving to Wednesday nights. You had, uh, you know, upcoming TV movies. You had the Flintstones Yabba Dabba Doo coming on. It was ABC's New Year's Eve programming in the evening. Uh, it's just a lot of fun. A, a really fun little broadcast to watch. Um, so if you find yourself with time and you're looking for something to do, why not sit down and watch the 9094 AFC wildcard game between the Miami Dolphins and the Kansas City Chiefs. You'll have a good time. I I have a quick update before we go. Um, I sent out a tweet asking what your preferred dandruff shampoo was, whether it was Head & Shoulders or Denerex, and Head & Shoulders is running away with it. Well, of course. Uh, I mean, basically 89% 89 to 11%. So you got to throw Neutrogena on For a very serious dandruff, I've actually got I've actually gotten a couple other suggestions that I never heard of before. Um, so anyway, ju- jump in, jump into the tweet. I, I sent it out from at Amplified to Rock. So uh, jump in there and, and check it out and <laughs> have some fun with us on Twitter. That's a great p- way to segue to the to the plugs. Follow Aaron at at Aaron the Brain. I'm at Amplified to Rock. The show is at Same Old Dolphins. We hope that you'll follow us, and we're really going to start swinging into gear here as the season is rapidly, hopefully rapidly approaching. We're going to just keep an eye on the situation. Uh, Make sure you're heading to DolphinsTalk.com every single day. It's your one-stop shop for all things Miami Dolphins. Make sure you subscribe, rate, review to to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Make sure you do it. And we will be back with you at some point in the future. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and as always, take care of yourselves and each other. We will talk to you again next time. Bye-bye, everybody. Go Dolphins! Miami's got Dolphins, the greatest football team. We take the ball from goal to goal like no one's ever seen. We're in the air, we're on the ground, we're always in control.